Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday morning, which means it's time for Bible study. I'm going to give everyone a few seconds to tune in. So we're just going to leave this live right now and give everyone just a minute to come in. I hope that you all have been staying safe and healthy. Um, I definitely miss seeing you all live together in the chapel, but I suppose this is as good as we can get. Um, so it is April 22nd and April 22nd means that we've got just one more lesson left in Genesis. So for those of you who've been tracking along with us with our little study bookmarks, um, we only have next week. Next week is the final lesson of Genesis. And I am sad. I know I will miss you all. Um, but I'm glad that we've been able to continue this even in self-quarantine. Um, a reminder as we allow everyone to kind of join up today um, that above there's a link to the website for St. Michael. If you go to stmichael.org slash RBS, which is Rector Bible Study, then you can see all of the lessons that we have done all year long. I've had a few people ask me if there will be lessons left up there over the summer so that they can kind of go back and catch up or re-listen to those lessons. And so just know, yes, all the lessons will be there all summer long. In fact, we just leave them up for good because no reason to take them down. Um, so if you want to go back and re-listen or just catch up on some, then you can visit stmichael.org slash RBS. And that's a great way for you to share this study with friends or family, especially those who are feeling a bit alone um, or those who probably scroll through news a little more than they should. It's good to be informed, um, but none of us need all that news as much as we are getting it. Um, and so if you don't have any good books to read or you've read all of the ones that you have, um, then do some Bible study. It's good for us. Um, and on that website, you should be able to go back a few years, which means you could do Luke and Acts and Genesis if you wanted to kind of give yourself a little bit of enrichment. And last little announcement I wanted to make sure that I said to you all um, is that we have begun an Easter podcast series. Um, back in Lent, we had a series where every Monday through Friday, every weekday morning, we had a small little prayer and meditation. It's only about seven or eight minutes long, and I'm joined by the clergy of St. Michael, and we read the daily readings, and then we give a meditation on the readings, and then we say prayers. And this is a really excellent way for you to kind of have prayer in your life each day. And so for those of you who joined me for the Lenten series or joined us for the Lenten series, thank you. Um, and if you want to continue with us, we've got a new Easter series. And if you go to stmichael.org slash Easter podcast, or just search for St. Michael and All Angels in any of your podcast players, then you can listen to that every morning. It's a great way to start your day. All right, so I see that a lot of people have joined us now. So please say hello in the comments below. If you are joining us for the first time, especially say hi. But if you want to say hi to your friends, that's what the comments are for. If you're joining us from outside of Dallas or from outside of St. Michael, then I'd love to hear from you and know where you're coming from. So please say hi and let us know where you're from below. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, and we give you thanks for the gift of this technology that allows us to stay connected even if we are physically separated. Lord, be with us in this time of quarantine. 
Help keep our spirits high. Help us stay focused on you. Help give us opportunities where we can show the love that you've given us to our neighbors. We can reflect that love in the world. Lord, empower those who are caring for the sick. Give them wisdom and strength and keep them safe. And for all those who are sick, we ask your healing touch upon them. Help them to know your presence, to feel your love and to feel our love and support for them. God, as we begin this Bible study today, we ask that you help us to put down the things that are weighing on us, the things that keep us anxious, the things that keep us down. Help us to put all that away so that we can open up space in our hearts and minds for you to fill us up. Help us to keep making space for you as we go forward so that we can be transformed by your spirit to help extend your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, everyone. Let's jump in. So last week, we were supposed to have gotten through chapter 43, and we just didn't. So we're going to jump back, and we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 43, and then we're going to press on, and we are probably going to only do through chapter 45 today. Then we'll do 46 to the end next week. So let's jump on in to chapter 43. So we left off where all of the brothers, except Benjamin, had gone down to Egypt to buy some grain. And they had gone to Egypt, they bought the grain, but then on their way home, and when they got home, they realized that the grain they brought included all the money that they intended to pay for it. And so they were kind of scared. They were scared to go back to Egypt. Imagine if you had gone to sort of grovel to someone for something you need. Excuse me. <clears throat> Man, I'm going to stop right there and say, these allergies are killing me. Are they killing you? Mm. Dallas right now is like an allergy bomb. <clears throat> okay, we're back together. So they've gone down to Egypt. They bought their grain. They go back home and they're a little scared because as far as they know, Egypt probably thinks they stole the grain because they had intended to pay, but they couldn't pay because Joseph had secretly put the money back in their bags. Now we know from the story that Joseph was just trying to take care of his family but maybe Joseph was kind of playing a little game here, playing a little game to see what they would do if they got home and realized that something had not gone the way that they had expected. <clears throat> so they immediately, they want to go back. They want to buy some more grain. They want to get grain so that they can sustain through the famine, but they know that it's not going to be quite as easy this time. And Joseph had told them, do not come back unless you bring all the brothers, which included Benjamin. They'd left Benjamin at home the first time. And so they were afraid that if they brought Benjamin, that Benjamin would be open and vulnerable. And they knew that their father, Jacob, loved Benjamin because he loved Rachel, their mother. And because they had, they thought, killed Joseph, Benjamin was the last person left who kind of reminded Jacob of Rachel. <clears throat> Sorry about that. So they try to convince Jacob that they should go back and buy some more grain. And Jacob says, absolutely not. You cannot take Benjamin. That's not going to work. So fast forward down to chapter 43. We're going to start 43 verse 8. And we're going to see that the famine has not gotten any better. And so Judah takes on the responsibility of convincing Jacob to let them take Benjamin back to Egypt with them. Okay. 
chapter 43, verse 8. Judah said to his father, Israel, and remember, Israel is Jacob, send the boy with me and let us be on our way so that we may live and not die. You and we and also our little ones. I myself will surely will be surety for him. You can hold me accountable for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then you can bear, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry them down as a present to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, resin, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the top of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and be on your way again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he may send back your brother Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and they took double the money with them as well as Benjamin. Then they went on their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So where we are right now is that the brothers have returned a second time to Egypt, but this time Benjamin comes with them. And they've tried to be a little smart, right? They are taking the money that they were supposed to pay last time down, and they're taking extra money now to buy more grain, and they're taking a little bit of an extra gift for Joseph and for Egypt, so that perhaps in case they think that they stole the grain the first time, they can kind of smooth it over a little bit. Here's to hoping. So they go on down and they are back in front of Joseph. So let's take a little pause here and consider what if we were Joseph? What if you were Joseph in the story? What would you do in this moment? How would you behave? We know that Joseph was very wronged, right? And Joseph knows that. Joseph has gone through a number of trials that are not easy, but Joseph's really kind of come out ahead, right? Joseph is in a very good place. We know he's gotten married, he has had children, and he is pretty much running Egypt. And at this time, Egypt is the power in the world. And so Joseph's not too bad off. If you were Joseph in this moment, what would you think? And how would you behave? Would you seek to reconcile with your brothers? Would you try and take revenge on the brothers? Would you not even care about your brothers and just want to let them pay for their grain and go on their way? Where would you fall in this? And not theoretically, kind of put yourself in your own story here. We have all been wronged by someone. We've all gotten our feelings hurt by someone. And sometimes that's a simple thing. And sometimes it is not a simple thing. Joseph's is not simple. His brothers abandoned him, left him for dead. And here Joseph has the opportunity to do something. If you had been wronged, or imagine a time you were wronged pretty significantly, how do you respond to the people who wronged you? Do you try to reconcile? Or do you perhaps test the people who wronged you to see if they deserve reconciliation? It's very interesting when we put ourselves in this story and think about how we treat forgiveness in our lives. Forgiveness is one of those, it's like the hardest thing that we do, honestly. Um, I would say that of all the conversations I have with people that are not sort of business-like, but of all the pastoral conversations I have with people, forgiveness is the hardest hurdle 
for people to get over because I think for most people, they feel like someone has to make it right, right? If the person who does the wrong wants to be forgiven, they need to make it right. They need to earn the forgiveness. That I think in a, in a human sense um, is correct, right? Our human sensibility says you do something wrong, you make it right. But if we put ourselves in the biblical principles, right? If we put ourselves in the Christian principles, Jesus doesn't really make forgiveness a hoop that we have to jump through. In effect, we need to want to be forgiven. I mean, there has to be a desire there in some way, but Christ does not hold forgiveness over us. We don't have to make it right. It's good if we make it right, but in a sense, we're forgiven if we are sorry for what we have done. Perhaps in that forgiveness, we go and make something right. That's a good thing. But Jesus doesn't really hold forgiveness over us until we make something right. Really, what Jesus does is he offers forgiveness for when we are sorry. And Joseph here is acting in a way that is not perhaps the pinnacle of Christian theology. Joseph is testing his brothers. Joseph is putting them through the ringer, or he will, as we'll see, in order to see if they deserve the forgiveness, deserve the reconciliation. And we may like Joseph's story, but perhaps Joseph's story isn't the best of how we can forgive others. So let's keep going. Joseph is playing games here, and we know that Joseph's games are being played, um, but unfortunately the brothers don't. So, look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. That's huge. I want to just note that Joseph does not have to do anything with anyone. Joseph is his own man. He doesn't have to acknowledge or do anything except perhaps for Pharaoh. And here, these random Canaanites show up, and Joseph wants to eat with them, wants to have effectively a feast with them. That's very odd. And so let's jump down to verse 26. The stewards go and they do all that stuff. They prepare the feast. And verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him the present that they had carried into the house and bowed to the ground before him. He inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and did obeisance. Then he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. With that, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with affection for his brother and he was about to weep. So he went into a private room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the meal. So Joseph has in this moment hosted a dinner for his brothers. He has seen Benjamin. He's been overcome for his love and affection for Benjamin, so much so that he's got to step aside. He's got to remove himself and go to another room so he can actually have a cry and then compose himself and come back out and be the host of this meal. It's, it's kind of a sweet moment, if we're honest. You know, here Joseph has been separated from his family for quite some time. 
And when he sees Benjamin, who is the brother who didn't wrong him, he's overcome. It's, it's, it's a very sweet moment. And I think we get a glimpse into Joseph's psyche here. Joseph is not just running his brothers through the ringer to make them earn the forgiveness. Joseph is not just meeting a wrong with some kind of meanness. Joseph is, I believe the storyteller is trying to have us see, that Joseph really does love his brothers, and he's trying to reach a real reconciliation, not something cheap, not something easy, but something that is deep and profound and real, because Joseph wants his family back. So, chapter 3 sets up the actions that will come in chapter 44. So, I want to remind you now, we're going to pause. That's the end of the first section for the day, and I didn't even tell you what the sections were today. I apologize for that. Um, but I want to remind you that I love questions. And so, Monica Rosser is here. She is monitoring the, the thread, the comment thread below. Um, Monica will let me know if there are some questions in the thread while I'm teaching, and if you've got a question and you just don't want to ask it publicly in the thread, then Monica will put her email address in the comment thread. It's just mrosser at stmichael.org. Email her right now and she'll be able to let me know that you sent a question and I can potentially answer that question right here in class. So I'm going to go back and tell you about the four sections of our class today because I just totally skipped over that. The first is the one we just did. The brothers return with Benjamin. Okay, number one. Second, Benjamin is detained. We're about to get to that. Third, Judah pleads for Benjamin. And then finally, number four for today, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. So again, let us know you're here. Say hello to your friends or perhaps introduce yourself. Make some new friends. Um, most of the people watching this are from St. Michael here in Dallas and they're such great people. Um, so hi to all of you and introduce yourself. Say hello. Ask the questions below and Monica will let me know once there are questions here. So we've just finished the first section. The brothers return to Benjamin and now we're getting to section two where Benjamin is detained. So I'll pause right here, grab some coffee because we can never have enough. And we're going to continue with Benjamin is detained in chapter 44 in one moment. All right, any questions here? Let's see. None yet. I do see some people from all over. Hi, nice to see you all. Okay, let's continue with chapter 44. So turning chapter 44, we're just going to start with the first few verses. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the top of his sack. Sound familiar? Put my cup, the silver cup, in the top of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. When they had gone only a short distance from the city, Joseph said to his steward, go follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you returned evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Does he not intend and indeed use it for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So Joseph is setting them up and setting them up in a pretty serious way, right? It's one thing the last time they were there 
to return with their money. That's kind of an oversight, right? Maybe, maybe the Egyptians just didn't keep the money or they just, there was a mistake. That can kind of be like an honest mistake. No, when you put the silver cup in the bag, now you look like a thief. You're not just making a mistake. You have stolen something. And remember, stolen something from Joseph. Joseph is, for all intents and purposes, Egypt, right? He is Pharaoh's representative. And so this could be very serious. So Joseph sets them up after they had had this lovely dinner, sends them on their way. Now, pause for a second and think about the brothers. If the brothers showed up thinking that they could get in some serious trouble for being, for being misunderstood the first time they were there, thinking that perhaps they had duped the Egyptians, so they brought the extra money to buy the new grain, to pay for their old grain, they wanted to give them gifts, they had brought fruit and nuts from Canaan, and everything kind of seemed okay, right? They were a little afraid, but not only was everything made right, but Joseph invited them into his house to have a feast. That's nuts. And so the brothers are probably thinking, we are in good shape, right? So they have this feast, everything is good. They get their bags filled with grain, all done. They're on their way home. They are probably so relieved. You know, they're hitting each other and they're laughing on the way back because they're like, yes, we are good. Benjamin's here, all is well. Simeon is free. Everything is good. However, Joseph has set them up for something pretty hard. So I want to pause real fast because I'm not entirely sure if everyone caught that Joseph is putting his divination cup in the bag. That's a little odd. And so I want to take a moment to say kind of what that is. So, so <laughs> we, Joseph is a dream interpreter. We've talked a little bit about what that means. But in this moment, and we hear it twice, Joseph is identified as someone who practices divination. So dream interpretation is one thing, right? You go to sleep, you have a dream, and in a sense, God speaks to you through the dream that you don't really control, and you are able to gain some kind of wisdom from that dream. So for Joseph, he's having dreams, and he's able to discern the future because of his dreams. Well, now we're hearing that Joseph has a special cup, and Joseph uses that cup for divination. Um, the uh, sophomancy is using a cup for divination. I had to actually look up how to pronounce that word. I'd never heard of it before. Um, sophomancy. And sophomancy is something that was practiced in ancient Egypt and Persia and can still be practiced today, where people do a number of things. Um, sometimes you can uh, people might read tea leaves in a cup, right? So you brew the tea, you let the leaves settle, and once the liquid is gone, you kind of see shapes and people get messages in the leaves, whatever. Um, another version of that is you see things floating in the drink and you gain knowledge based on the way that the bits are floating in the drink, which sounds nasty to me. I don't want stuff floating in my drink. Um, a third way that people do sophomancy is they kind of ring the chalice or the cup so if you can imagine you've got a nicer cup, either silver or crystal or something like that, fill it a little bit and you kind of tap on the side of it. And then there's a sound that is produced out of the cup that can sort of sound like a human voice. Um, and people over, over time have used that sound to sort of hear voices, to 
connect with a different realm or learn the future or whatever. Um, and so the storyteller here is showing us that David, I'm sorry, that Joseph represents a tradition that would have been very popular in Egypt and in other Near East ancient cultures. Um, and so there has been some kind of transition away from just dream interpretation to some kind of more acceptable or on-demand interpretation, perhaps. You don't even have to have a dream. Joseph's going to like ring the cup and hear whatever message you're supposed to hear from God. Eh, so that's just, you can put that over there, put that in your pocket. Um, Sophomancy, it's S-C-Y-P-H-O-M-A-N-C-Y. It's a good word. So that's your word of the day. Okay. When the brothers are overtaken, things get real. Now I've got a couple questions. Let's pause right here. Um, Elizabeth writes, um, why is he primarily setting up Benjamin? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so Joseph is obviously targeting Benjamin. Why? So if we go back to Jacob, Jacob's favorite wife, his true beloved is Rachel. Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel died before Joseph was ever sold. So Rachel is dead. Jacob loves Joseph. And he fawns over Joseph and gives him everything. And that's ultimately one of the reasons why his brothers wanted to get rid of him. And so Joseph is sold and they are presumed dead, right? They even told Jacob Joseph was dead. They put blood on his coat and all that stuff. So fast forward years later, and the only person left in Jacob's life who represents his favorite wife is Benjamin. And so although the story doesn't go into details, I think it's safe to assume that Benjamin has, in a sense, taken Joseph's place. Now, maybe Jacob isn't quite so ridiculous in fawning over Benjamin like he was with Joseph, but I bet the brothers know Benjamin's the favorite now, right? And maybe Benjamin is just wiser than Joseph. Remember that scene where Joseph has that dream and he comes out in his pretty coat that Jacob gave him and he says, hey, everybody, I had a dream and you're all going to be worshiping me one day. Isn't that great? And I remember reading that story and thinking, what an idiot, right? You may have that dream and you may interpret that dream that way. You know who you don't tell? Your brothers who are supposed to be the ones who will what, worship you in the future? No, dummy, don't say that. And so Benjamin may have learned a bit from Joseph and Benjamin is probably doing a good job of being the favorite, but not being annoying about it. And so Joseph, even though he doesn't know anything about that, right? Joseph likely understands that Benjamin would have taken his place. And when Benjamin doesn't come with them the first time, Joseph probably thinks that his suspicions are confirmed, that Benjamin is the special one, and the other brothers might be, um, Jacob might be okay losing one of the other sons, but not Benjamin. And so when they take so long to get back with Benjamin, Joseph probably knows that Benjamin's the one who will be the target. And so even though Benjamin's the one he loves that enough to make him weep, Benjamin becomes the target, not because Joseph wants Benjamin hurt, but because Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they have learned from the mistake they made with him. All right, so very good question. Um, and then Ashley asks... Um, about Matthew chapter five with forgiveness. Um, so Matthew five is Sermon on the Mount stuff. So we've got 
beatitudes that roll into ideas of forgiveness and peacefulness and the way that we're supposed to treat each other. Um, and I'm, although I can't pull out verses 23 and 4 out of my head, um, I will say that that's going to follow after beatitudes and go into some of the lessons around how we are to treat one another. Um, what's important about what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, either one, is the sense that God's grace is for everyone. And Jesus really begins a, what I would say is a pretty clear teaching that he continues for the rest of his ministry around the blessing of humility, the blessing of poverty and simplicity. Um, Jesus effectively, I mean, you can sort of say, I don't know, is this going to sound right? Some of you are watching this and disagree with this, but I would say that Jesus probably more than almost anything else teaches that the world can get in the way of a good relationship with God. And the way the world gets in the way is by convincing us that we need stuff we don't need. That is the way that the world really gets in the way of real discipleship. And so, I mean, the classic is, right, the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, my Lord, I have followed all, I've done all the good stuff I'm supposed to do my whole life. How do I gain eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, have you followed all the commandments? He said, yes, I've done all those things every day of my life. I've lived a good life. I've been generous. I've been giving. And he says, well, why don't you go sell everything you have and follow me? And the young man turns and walks away. And as the passage says, because he had many possessions. So the implication there is he had too much stuff in order to really follow Jesus. And so in a sense, the world had gotten in the way so significantly that he couldn't get beyond the world in order to find the truth of following God. Now, blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are those who hurt and hunger because in a sense, the world has not gotten in their way. And when they hear the good news, their first thought isn't, wait a minute, I like my life, right? They just respond. They are saved in a way because they don't have any reason not to be. Whereas for many of us, probably most of us watching this right now, we have a decent level of comfort. I mean, we may not love our situation right now in quarantine, many of us by ourselves, but all things considered, what a blessing it is that our chief concern right now is that we can't see our friends or our family. It's not easy, but oh my gosh, we're not worried about eating today. We're not worried about being exposed to the elements today. We're not worried about dying today because there might be, it might be too cold or too hot outside. We have so much that we can let all of the so much get in the way of true discipleship. And in a sense, true discipleship means we live out the God that we know, God's grace for us is so huge, so overwhelming, so infinite and profound. Why shouldn't we offer that same kind of grace to others? That includes things like forgiveness. And we are forgiven. 
whether we earn it or not. And so why wouldn't we forgive others whether they earn it or not? And that's where a story like Joseph's can be a little difficult for us. Because for many of us, we may kind of like that Joseph put his brothers through a test to see if they deserved the forgiveness and the reconciliation. But that's not exactly what we see with Jesus. And I think for Christians, people who aren't, you know, if you're not Christian, or perhaps you're not yet decided, if you're undecided, um, then know that this may not necessarily apply to you, but that you're invited, right? Being a follower of Jesus allows us to, I think, kind of be the best versions of ourselves, be the people God really created us to be. And in that sense, we are all blessed. Um, okay, I, I'll get off my, my pulpit and we're going to continue. Um, so good, good questions. Thank you all. Continue to ask the questions down below. I love them. Okay, so we are still in, are we still in the second section? Okay, we, I got to move faster. Okay, so the people are overtaken. The brothers are overtaken and then kind of things get real. So let's look at verse six of chapter 44. When the steward overtook the brothers, he repeated these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants that they should do such a thing. Look, the money that we found at the top of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Why then would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Should it be found with any one of your servants? Let him die. Moreover, the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. He said, even so, in accordance with your words, let it be. He with whom it is found shall become my slave, but the rest of you shall go free. Then each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Oh my goodness, it's a great moment, right? So the steward chases after them. They, the brothers think all's well, and when the steward comes and accuses them of stealing, the brothers say, whoa, 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 listen. We got home with all the money last time. We even brought all that money back to you. So we brought the money back. We brought new money to buy new stuff. We brought gifts with you. Why in the world would we steal anything, right? We have proven that we are good people. And yet the steward says the cup is missing. And so they double down and they say, hey, listen, we are good guys. We did everything right. You will not find that cup in our sacks. And if you do then let the person who has the cup die and the rest of us will become your slaves because they were so sure, so confident that they had not stolen anything that they bet on their lives. So jump to verse 14. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house while he was still there and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that one such as I can practice divination? There it is a second time. And Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Here we are then, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one in whose possession the cup has been found. So Judah becomes the mouthpiece. Judah becomes the person who speaks on behalf of the brothers. And he certainly knows that this is a mistake, but that they are not in the power position, right? They have 
no power to argue their case. They cannot appeal to a court. Joseph is it. Joseph is the one who can make the decision. And so Judah and the brothers fall to their feet. They bow before Joseph, by the way, again. And so Joseph's predictions from well before when he was young are coming true over and over again. And Judah says, we are at your mercy. What can we do to make this right? And so that ends the second section for today. Now we're going to shift into section three, where Judah pleads not just to make things right, but pleads for Benjamin. So if you've got some questions about the second section, let me know down below. Monica is texting me on the side so that I can stay attuned to the questions that are being asked. All right, we're going to begin with section three. As your questions come, I'll get to them. Look at verse 17. Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the one in whose possession the cup was found shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. We'll pause there. The brothers have come back. Judah is speaking for the brothers, and he is saying, This is not right. Something is wrong. But how can we make it right? We want to make it right. But remember what they said. They said the one who's, who has the cup could be killed. Well, we've not quite gone to being killed, but we have gone to being a slave, staying and being a servant. And this is not going to work. Remember what Judah told Jacob? Jacob didn't want Benjamin to go. But Judah and the brothers said, we must go to Egypt and buy grain or else we will starve. And Judah said very clearly to Joseph, I will own Benjamin. Benjamin's fate is tied to mine. If anything happens to Benjamin, then you can do whatever you want to me. I will make it right. And so Judah has put his neck on the line in order to keep Benjamin safe. And here, Judah hears that Joseph is saying, hey, Benjamin had the cup. Benjamin stays. That's not going to work. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Then Judah stepped up to him and said, O oh my Lord, let your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. When you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I may see him with my own eyes, we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. So pause there. So what Judah's doing is Judah's recounting the conversation that he's already had with Joseph. So then he continues to recount the conversation that he had with Jacob. So we're going to jump down now to verse 30. So jump with me to 30. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became surety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame in the sight of my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. 
So in this moment, Judah makes a bold move. Oh, that gave me chills. Um, that section right there where Judah gives himself up in order to save Benjamin, in order to give his father back the son he loves the most is so complex. I mean, this is such an amazing moment, right? We are all someone's children, someone's child, right? And I bet most of us have siblings. Can you imagine, put yourself in Judah's position. Judah knows that his father likes one of his siblings more. And Judah knows that for the good of the whole connected family, they've got to go and put themselves at risk in order to save everyone. And then Judah's put in this position where his father's favorite could be stuck in Egypt forever. And Judah sacrificially offers himself to stay in Egypt in place of Benjamin so that his father has his favorite son back. So the complexity here gets layered and layered and layered because what does this really represent? This represents Judah having learned his lesson about Joseph, right? Joseph has set up this elaborate plan to test his brothers. And in this moment, Joseph knows that Judah has changed. Judah has learned. Judah is now owning the responsibility. He's not going to make the same mistake again. That means Judah is genuinely sorry for what happened with Joseph. So much so that Judah will put his own life on the line in order to save his father's favorite. They lost Joseph once. They're not losing Benjamin now. It's a beautiful moment. Three ideas really come together here. You've got the first that I've already mentioned, that Judah wants to make things right. And it is tangible. This is not just lip service. Judah's not just saying he would do this. Judah, Judah is right there in Pharaoh's court, speaking to the number two Joseph, saying, take me, not my brother. Joseph knows that the repentance is real. Second, this is a fulfillment of Joseph's first dreams. We've seen that Joseph's dreams have come true, and in this moment, we see that his very first interpreted dreams, in our story at least, are, is coming true. They have been fulfilled. Third, and this is a bit deeper, bigger, there is a hopefulness here in an ultimate resolution and reunification of Israel represented in both Joseph and Judah. And let me just say a bit more about that. Remember that Genesis and all of these books are written in exile, right? All of the Jewish leaders have been taken into Babylon in exile. And if you remember what I've said in classes past, David and Solomon united Israel into a single kingdom. But following Solomon's death, the kingdoms divided. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's where Israel gets confusing. Israel could be the name of a people. Israel could be the name of Jacob. Israel could be the name of a unified nation. Israel could be the name of the northern kingdom. It's very confusing. So right before the exile, the kingdom was divided. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was... Uh, how do I want to start this? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jacob's sons, 
are the ones that ultimately populate the kingdom. The northern tribes are represented mostly by Joseph's descendants. His sons become the big tribes of the northern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin's descendants become the major main tribes of the southern kingdom, which is why the southern kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah. Those two kingdoms, although yoked, did not always get along. And their disagreements and their dysfunction caused them to become weak enough so that the Assyrian Empire came and sacked the northern kingdom of Israel and took them into exile. Then the Babylonian Empire overtook the Assyrian Empire and then kept going south, farther south, and they sacked the southern kingdom of Judah and took their leaders to Babylon. So the Babylonian exile is really made up of the leaders of the southern kingdom. Those would be from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But it is very safe to assume that leaders from the northern kingdom that had been in exile in, in the Assyrian Empire would have been taken also into Babylon. As the Jewish people reflected on what went wrong that led to the exile, one of the ways they may understand what went wrong is the division between the north and the south, that they really should be unified. And if they were unified, they would have been strong enough to resist the influence and the attack of outside empires. But because they became um, dysfunctional, they bickered, they argued, they divided, they were made weak. They were not faithful to God and they were made weak. And so part of the story here is a hopefulness that post-exile, right? So this is actually happening hundreds of years from, from the time this story is supposed to take place. But that after the exile, they would actually return and unite. That these tribes of Joseph and Judah, who represented the biggest portion of the northern and the southern kingdoms, would unite. And so they really drive home the part of the story where Judah reconciles with Joseph as a means to hope for the future reconciliation of all of the tribes, both kingdoms, into a unified Israel. So those are the three moments that really come together in, this, in the end of this story. So before we kick off to chapter 45, I see that there is a question here. So David asks, why did Joseph never let his father know he was still alive? He certainly had the ability to do so, given his position in Egypt, which is a great question. Um, the short answer is, we don't know. Um, we can't tell for sure why certain things happened the way that they did. We also don't know that he didn't try. Um, I think he obviously has affection for his family, certainly affection for his father, um, he asks about his father multiple times to make sure he's still alive. And one, I think, could assume that perhaps he did try. And maybe a message never returned to him. Maybe the message never made it there. Um, I mean, the postal system, as it were, back as it was back then, is not perhaps as reliable as it would be today, um, even though, gosh, that's not even true. So I think that we have no reason to expect that Joseph didn't try. Um, but certainly, Jacob never received a message. We do know that. 
and the brothers never received a message. Nobody knew Joseph was alive. And so in the moment that's about to come in chapter 45, the brothers are going to be shocked. And that shock means even if Joseph tried, they never received that message. All right, I think we can press on. I'm, I might be on time today, it's gonna be great. Section four, let's begin with chapter 45, verse one. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. So we'll pause there. Joseph is overcome. Oh, I got chills again. I told you I love this story. So Joseph is overcome with the words of Judah, right? Judah says, take me, send Benjamin back. And Joseph knows in that moment that his brothers are better, that they have learned, that they regret what they did to Joseph and will not let that happen again to Benjamin, in particular, Judah. Judah has really come full circle. And as I noted last week, that Judah had a humbling experience with Tamar that helped to transition and transform him into a person who understands that the world is not all about him. And Joseph gets all of this like a waterfall over him in this moment. And he's so overcome that he sends everyone out but the brothers. He weeps and he's so loud that everyone outside of that room could hear him, which is kind of funny. So Joseph is drama, drama, drama right here. And he is weeping and the brothers are stunned. I mean, can you imagine in this moment, the brothers who have feared Joseph for so long? I mean, at this point, a year, more. All of a sudden, this king of, it, of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, breaks down, starts crying, weeping, yelling. You know, I can imagine all that Egyptian makeup is running down his cheeks. I would be scared if I were the brothers because Joseph has come unhinged, right? Who knows what he's going to do? That's why Joseph says, come closer to me. See me. Look at me. I am your brother. It's this beautiful moment. It's wonderful. Um, Joseph has had a wild life. He has been treated badly by so many, including his brothers who should have loved him and protected him. But he knows that his brothers have changed and now the reconciliation will come. Let's continue on verse five. Joseph says, and now do not be distressed or angry for, with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you, for you and many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. This is a pretty profound moment. And I imagine that some of you are kind of wondering because this is a, a section or a portion of this story that is not perhaps what I have described about my own beliefs in the past. Um, so Joseph articulates a faithfulness here. He reveals his own faithfulness in God that enduring every hardship was actually part of God's plan, that God had planned that Joseph go through all of those trials and tribulations in order that he end up where he ends up so that he can be a tool for doing this good work, for saving countless lives, including the lives of his brother and his father, brothers and father. Now, last week we had an interesting question. The question was, how can Joseph's story be part of God's plan if Joseph's story is effectively how the Israelites become slaves in Egypt. And I thought that was such a, an acute, a brilliant question that there is this connection here. Yeah, the storyteller is absolutely saying that God's plan was Joseph would go through all of these hardships in order to be able to save his family and others. But why would God have done that if only generations later, all of the Israelites, the chosen, are enslaved in Egypt. Now, one could say, well, part of the story of God's people is their exodus, right? Part of the story of the Jewish people, of the chosen people, is the promise of the land and the salvation out of Egypt at the hand of Moses, and that all of that was God's plan. If I were a Jewish leader in the exile, that would make great sense. And why? Because that means that the exile itself is part of God's plan. It is as simple as that. The Jewish leaders are there in exile in Babylon saying, what did we do wrong? And where they land is in part an understanding that God has a plan, that God has planned all of this from the beginning, including things like Joseph's brothers mistreating him so that Joseph could become two in Egypt, and that the Israelites go to Egypt to be saved by Joseph, but they get enslaved in order for God to then take them out so that the Jewish people understand that God is all-powerful and they receive the commandments and they become the Jews and they raise up this great kingdom and then they are taken into exile because they get off track and they are not faithful to God and that is also part of God's plan. So don't worry about being in exile because God is working everything out and the plan that God put in place is exactly what is happening right now. And so even though the exile is hard, God has a plan. Okay. Now, for those of you who've been studying with me for a long time, no. I don't actually agree with the very specifics of that. Because I think that God does not plan for us to be hurt. God does not plan for bad things to happen to us. 
God does not put us through the trials in order for us to somehow come out on the good side. We see that in Jesus. Jesus does not hurt people in order for them to look to him for salvation. Jesus offers salvation to people who are hurting. There's a very important nuance there. God wants us, wants all of us, wants the love he offers to us to be reciprocated back honestly. That means that God is not in control of every single thing that happens in our life. We get to make choices. Other people around us get to make choices. And often, maybe most often, our choices are not godly. And when we make those choices, we open ourselves up to pain and to heartbreak. And perhaps we aren't the cause of it, but there are ripples all around us from choices that people are making that can ripple that pain right into us. I've said it before, and I think this is as good an example as any. There are people out there, some of you, I unfortunately too many of you, who have lost children. Your child's death was not part of God's plan. God did not take your child from you in order to make you more faithful. That is wrong. And anyone who teaches that is wrong. However, God loves your child and loves you. And when that happened, God was with you. And in your grief and your pain, God was with you. And when you couldn't carry yourself, God carried you. And God helps you to make something good out of something horrible. You can apply that to any part of your life. Any pain that you feel, any pain or heartbreak that you go through is not caused by God, but God remains with you in it. And God will help you to turn that pain into something godly, into something good, and help you to reconcile with anyone in order to become more faithful in the future. All right, so we'll pause right there because I have to think that that will kick off some thoughts and ideas, maybe some questions. Go ahead and mention those below, but I do wanna just tie this up real fast so that we can end today's lesson. So Joseph is overwhelmed. He wants his whole family to come to Egypt and everyone in Egypt is excited and pleased by this. And I'll end with the last few with some the last few verses for the day. Let's look at verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me so that I may give you the best of the land of Egypt and you may enjoy the fat of the land. You are further charged to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Give no thought to your possessions for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So in this moment, Joseph has done a miraculous thing. 
Joseph has survived all of the trials he has experienced. Joseph has remained faithful to God. God is faithful to him. And Joseph has been given the opportunity to save his family, to literally save his family from starvation. And Pharaoh, in a very generous mood, says to Joseph, give everybody here, bring them here. Don't worry about them bringing anything with them because we've got plenty. And I will share the land, this Egyptian land, with you and your family. This is huge. These are Hebrews who are coming from far away into Egypt. Egypt is high class. And Pharaoh has opened Egypt up to these people who are not Egyptians. And why? Because Pharaoh loves Joseph. And we will see next week as we end Genesis that that love for Joseph is really what sustains and continues the good, uh, the goodwill from Pharaoh to all of the Israelites. And that is important as we in Genesis because we make a 400 year jump when we go to Exodus. And the reason that the Israelites are in trouble is because Pharaoh no longer knows Joseph. So thank you all for being with me today. If you've got some questions or if you are watching this video on demand and not live, ask your questions below because we check this next week and we can use those questions to help further develop the lesson so that everyone gets more out of these lessons. And as a reminder, next week is the last one, last week for Genesis Bible study. And so I hope you will join me, share this lesson with your friends, invite them in. And if you want to catch up on lessons that have happened before now, above the video, there's a link to stmichael.org slash rbs, which is Rector Bible Study, stmichael.org slash rbs. You can see all the lessons from this entire school year catch up. And instead of scrolling through extra news tonight, how about have another Bible study? May God bless you all. Stay safe, stay healthy. I send my love to you and I look forward to seeing you here again next week. Bye everyone.